us, and uh, I've had the privilege to get to know Charlie and Erica, and they are, uh, they've become the closest of friends, and uh, Michelle and I adore them, and we're grateful for them being in our lives, and also, they, in a way, they call this place home because of the way we've loved on them, and we're going to continue to do that, and for them to say yes and come and be with us, I'm so overjoyed. Um, but the person who sacrificed the most was uh, our good friend Bill Federer, because graciously he stepped aside and he said I'd love to have Charlie come and speak um, and and uh, but he still came out and actually last night on his way here his flight was canceled in Chicago and he still pursued so he could be here and he brought 50 books with him of his new book that sold out for service so there's none left is that right but you can still sign up for it and get it and it's an amazing book um, and and with this he told a story for a service that was remarkable all of you have met Charlie or heard of him that's why you're here so I don't have to do a great introduction um, so what I'm going to do is have Bill do the introduction because he told a story and when I heard that story I thought Charlie so uh, Bill come on up and tell this story welcome Bill Federer <laughs> oh it's a different story it's one of the ones in the book but 1588 the uh Spanish are invading England, the Dutch and the English team up uh, and win, and then it's a tug of war between the English and Dutch, and the English win because they have an admiral named William Penn, and he helps take New York from the Dutch, right, from New Amsterdam to New York, and he captures Jamaica from the Spanish, and he goes over to Europe and brings Charles II, who had his, his dad had his head chopped off, uh, brings him back to England. And so this Admiral William Penn has a son, William Penn. He's going to Oxford. He's big man on campus. He's meeting with the admiral, his dad. He's meeting with the king. And then he, on campus, he starts noticing this group that's always getting in trouble called the Quakers. And they're talking about this thing called conscience. In other words, they're not believing the way the state says. They're believing the... the anyway, uh, young William Penn gets arrested, put in prison. He's in the Tower of London. The dad threatens to disown him. Finally, the dad says, look, whatever you do, don't violate your conscience. Well, the dad's dying. And the dad tells the king, look, can you take care of my son when I'm gone? So he dies. The son, William Penn, is going to take his inheritance and buy a piece of land called West Jersey. And uh, the, the king counters and says, look, I'm going to give you 45,000 square miles, make you the richest non-royalty landowner in the world. And so this young William Penn inherits Pennsylvania, and he decides to have a holy experiment to see if Christians of different denominations can live together in the same space, right? And so it's in Pennsylvania that you have the Continental Congress that meets, and the Declaration of Independence, and the, the Constitution of the United States, all because of this one young man who decides he's going to follow his conscience. Anyway, we have a young man today who's following his conscience. He's making an international impact, Charlie Kirk. So there you go. So uh, Charlie and I were driving in, and actually last night he had expressed, he said, do you mind if I talk on, uh, on life and on abortion and, the, and how it's affected America? And, and I said, Charlie, you know, I, I turned it over to you, even though Sanctity of Life Sunday, we always address a topic, but I wasn't going to ask him to do anything other than what he was on his heart to share. And I turned, I said, yeah. And the first service was remarkable. And at the end of it, the conclusion, we're going to do question and answer. A okay. uh, couple things we'd ask. Well, I'll go through that later. Charlie, take it away. God oh, bless you. Thank you. Hi. Um, hello, everybody. So, so uh, thankful to be back. First, I just want to thank Rob McCoy. You guys have a real special pastor here, one, one unlike any, anyone else in the whole country. Um, if America had a thousand more Rob McCoys, 
maybe this sermon wouldn't needed to be given today, to be honest with you. So that's something to think about. Uh, it's been a busy month for us uh, at Turning Point USA. Just about a month ago, uh, Rob and I and 5,000 of my closest friends under the age of 22 were in Palm Beach, Florida uh, for the largest ever student gathering of its kind. We had the President of the United States speak. Uh, we had pretty much every speaker you can imagine. 5,000 students three days away from Christmas uh, spending their savings and maybe some of them going into debt to go uh, celebrate our country, to celebrate freedom. We did a spontaneous Bible study one of the mornings. Uh, remember, we're a secular organization run by Christians. Uh, important distinction, but we did a spontaneous Bible study. Hundreds of students showed up at 8 a.m., uh, totally contrary to what you might think students would be doing at 8 a.m., but it was terrific, um, and it's just great to see the momentum we're having. Uh, a couple weeks before that, uh, December 11th or so, I spoke at Brown University. Um, if you want your child to hate America, send them to Brown University. <laughs> that's, that's what I could tell you. Uh, I'm going to kind of tie in some of the things I learned at Brown throughout this message. Uh, I've been to a lot of campuses across the country. I spoke at Stanford. I've sp- Spoke at UC Berkeley, at UCLA, all in, one ses- all in one semester and lived to tell about it, which is pretty remarkable. But Brown is really a special uh, place, not for good reasons. Um, it was tough to get through the speech uh, without constant interruptions and protests. Students that um, were very committed to thwarting my speech, I did get through it, hour and a half, took questions. Uh, but the one thing that was so interesting and you know, Brown being, it's, it's, it's so tragic, because Brown used to be one of America's great religious institutions. It used to be called the King's College of Rhode Island, or, and then they changed to Brown. I mean, all the Ivy Leagues were once religious schools, uh, including Princeton, which was a Presbyterian school, and Harvard, and Yale, and Columbia, and now they're the most anti-religious uh, schools you could possibly imagine. What was most telling to me throughout my time at Brown um, was the thing that got them the most worked up wasn't even my comments on abortion, which I'll talk a little bit about, wasn't even my comments on how I said there are only two genders, which got them quite fired up. Um, <laughs> but it's as soon as I said our rights come from God, not from government, then they lost it. That was, forget it. So as soon as you talk about a higher power, as soon as you talk about an authority bigger than them, that is a bridge too far. That's the crossing of the Rubicon, right? That's the Lexington and Concord. I can keep going, right, with historical uh, mentions. But for them, that is, can't even discuss it. And there's a reason for that. I mean, once you believe there's a God, you believe in sovereign life, you believe in respect for others, you believe in the rights of the unborn, you believe all these things that come after you admit there's a God. So that's where they put up their big and major defense. No not permissible, and so that was very interesting to deconstruct uh, with these students, and you ask them, well, would you believe the Bible if, it was, if, you, if I could prove it, it was true, or is it not the truth and the veracity of the Bible, or is it something that you just don't want to change in your own life? It's two totally different things, and most of them, quite honestly, have been sold to the quickest and largest, uh, the fastest growing religion in America, which is atheism. I talked about this last time I was here. Uh, but there's a direct connection with the rise of atheism and secular culture with a lot of the problems that we have uh, in our country today. So it is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Um, I'm going to be at the March for Life later this week. Um, I'm unapologetically pro-life. I talk about it a lot. I know it's a tough subject to talk about, uh, so I'm going to try to do it with um, as gentle of a touch as I can. 
um, and just with facts, reason, logic, and scripture. Uh, but before I even start with that, um, I want to talk about two problems and two issues I think the pro-life movement has. So that's right, I'm going to start with two problems, and then I'll build out the case for why uh, Christians should, of course, be pro-life and how we should defend it. But I'm going to start with the issues. And this is coming from, I visit over 80 to 100 campuses a year personally. Our network's now on 2,000 campuses. Our content, uh, my own personal social media channels will reach hundreds of millions of people uh, every single month. And so I'm reading and we're analyzing a lot of data and a lot of feedback from people. And so I could tell you when talking about the issue of abortion, the first problem that I think we have in the pro-life movement, and it was touched on a little bit earlier, um, which is whether intentionally or unintentionally, um, we talk about abortion, um, people that have had abortions or they have friends that have abortion feel as if they're being condemned by other individuals. And it's a very important thing that we as Christians and those of you that believe in pro-life um, teaching that we understand many women who get abortions have no understanding of what they're actually doing. They've been deceived by abortionists, by a culture to make it seem as if this is no different than getting cosmetic surgery. And as, as you have heard from the wonderful ministry prior, um, many women wrestle with this for the rest of their life. There's spiritual and even physical damage that they have to overcome. And so I push back against some pro-life advocates that I think make women um, far less likely to have a conversation about abortion because it gets into this almost um, condemnation narrative when our focus really should be on the abortionists and the doctors that doctors, as I put in quotes, I don't even call them doctors because I don't believe abortion is healthcare. Healthcare is about being healed and uh, improving one's condition and that's not what happens in the practice of abortion. So I think that's the first thing, one thing that can really be improved upon, which is showing love and grace and reconciliation for individuals that have gone through that. And the second thing uh, in the pro-life movement that w there are a lot of great ministries and a lot of great activity going towards this, but I can tell you the secular world is not hearing it or they're refusing to hear it, so we have to do a better job of making sure they hear it, is for every minute we spend talking about abortion, we should equally talk about talking about adoption. It needs to be just as vocal, uh, just as widespread. I know a lot of you are saying, well, Charlie, there's all these great adoption ministries we talked about it. Well, it's not enough because the secular world interprets and thinks that all we care about is that one issue, not actually adoption. Now, here are just some lies about adoption in America. The other side will uh, tell you that um, there's, no, uh, there's not enough parents that want to actually receive these children. That's not true. Rough estimates show that there's anywhere upwards of half a million to 750,000 families that are waiting in line to receive children. We make it way too complex, cumbersome, and expensive to adopt children in our country, and way too easy to have abortions. So it's absolutely inverted the way it is um, currently. And they say that, well, what are we going to do about unwanted children? All of us should call a timeout as soon as we hear that. No such thing as unwanted children. It does not exist. It does not exist. If one person does not want that child, that doesn't mean the child is unwanted. That one person's individual opinion does not make that child unwanted. And so I encourage all of you that in the pro-life advocacy you do, tie that in with adoption advocacy. Um, especially when you have 
hundreds of thousands of families that are waiting prayerfully and patiently. And I've seen this. It's so frustrating for families to go through the adoption process. And it can be tens of thousands of dollars in legal bills to just be able to adopt, uh, not just from the foster system, but from other ways as well. So those are my two issues with the pro-life movement. I want to start with it because I know a lot of you in this room are part of that, and I can tell you from the first hand, uh, those are two things we need to improve upon. So I hear every single argument you could possibly imagine when it comes um, in favor of abortion from college campuses. Um, it's framed as a women's right to choose. Um, it's in some ways framed as a way to um, reduce crime. Um, that was a book called Freakonomics, where there was an entire chapter dedicated to abortion keeps the crime rate low. Um, and if you don't believe me, check it out yourself. All those things we'll dive into and I'll touch on the best I possibly can. I'm going to go through some of the biggest myths surrounding abortion uh, with rational, logical, fact-driven arguments, which is kind of what I do. Um, I always try to bring facts, truth, logic, history, and reason in a world of just feelings and emotion, which is where it seems the other side has set up their entire Potemkin village. <laughs> we first just have to ask the question, when does life begin? So we have a universal consensus in America of when life ends. In fact, there's an entire industry around declaring a life to be over. Um, there's a do doctors in the medical field, you get a death certificate. Um, it's pretty widely accepted. However, even more fundamental than the life being um, over, we don't have a consensus of when life begins, but we should. So you look at the Bible, the Bible is quite clear about this. Um, Jeremiah 1.5 is one of the most um, taught, cited pro-life verses in the entire Bible. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew who you were. Um, of course, you go just to Jesus Christ. It says that Jesus was conceived as Jesus upon conception. And so, as Pastor Rob mentioned in the previous um, service, that when we celebrate Jesus coming to earth, we should celebrate it nine months prior, really, because he was actually on earth nine months before his birth, that Jesus was actually hosted within a female's body um, well before the birth actually occurred. Very interesting to think about. Um, there's a very misleading lie uh, that is being purported by some of the leading people running for the presidency of the United States. Um, former Mayor Pete Buttigieg um, makes the argument, as he did in Sioux County, Iowa yesterday, that life begins at breath, and he cited the Bible by doing so, um, where he said that life begins at breath, and that's what Genesis says. Um, that is an alarmingly, uh, let's just say, um, horrific, let's just say bad argument, I'll just leave it at that, for a variety of different reasons, um, such as, therefore, he's perfectly okay with abortion all the way up into the point of delivery. Just to give some context of what we're talking about here, and I, I do talk about this a fair amount on campuses. It's not what I lead with. Um, I get accused of saying, Charlie, you shouldn't be allowed to talk about this, and you can't talk about this because you're a young, white, Christian male. Let's be perfectly clear. Truth is truth no matter who says it at any time, at any point. <laughs> Enough of this identity politics of my truth. So either we're talking about something that is true or we're not, 
It'd be the, just the same if a woman came up here and gave this speech. Everything I'm talking about is incontrovertible, no matter who the speaker is. So to kind of go back to the kind of argument, kind of the, some of the data of abortion in our country, when I talk about this, I refresh myself on the statistics, and it takes my breath away when I actually look at what's going on in our country. And yesterday, 3,000 preborn children were aborted. So that wasn't on the news, it won't be on the news, 3,000 preborn children. Today, another 3,000 will be aborted. Um, 53 million abortions since Roe versus Wade, and I've probably been on stage for about 10 minutes. Eight, eight preborn children were aborted since the time I got on stage. This is just in America, that's not even worldwide. It's just in America. It's about a million abortions a year, more or less. One million abortions a year, about 1.2 million. Um, not all communities abort their children at the same rates, um, as our friend Kevin mentioned in the previous service. Um, in the black community, uh, you look at um, essentially childbearing age of young women. They, make, they compose about 3.5% of the American population, yet they compose 40% of all the abortions. So the abortion rate in the black community in New York City is higher than the birth rate in New York City. So if you see a pregnant woman in the subway in New York City, um, they're far more likely going to Planned Parenthood than they are eventually going to the delivery room. Um, if you actually look at the, who founded Planned Parenthood and the philosophy behind it, it was founded by Margaret Sanger, who was a eugenicist, a racist, a KKK member, and argued for population control, specifically against brown and black people. And if you look at the black birth rate, every other portion of American population has grown their piece of the pie. Uh, every other minority population, I should say, except black America, they've stayed just consistently at 13.4%, right around 14% of the American population. Um, if someone was sinister and wanted to prevent more black people from coming into America, their job was accomplished through abortion. It's alarming to actually look at. There's, there's been a lot of discussion recently um, in, in the kind of national narrative. Yesterday was the Women's March, um, where women were marching for something, I'm not exactly sure what, but uh, abortion seemed to be a big undertone of that entire demonstration, uh, sure. Um, they say that it, it is a war on women to even have a conversation about reproductive, um, they call it rights. So a couple thoughts on this. Number one, let's just first realize America, we are the greatest country ever to exist in the history of the world. This is a stain on our country, the likes of which, which is even hard to talk about. I wish we didn't have to talk about this today. We have the most laissez-faire, worst abortion laws in the world. The rest of the world can't believe the abortion laws we have in our country. In fact, they resemble communist China and North Korea. There's only four other countries with laws as permissible of abortion as we have in our country. Even in Europe, they'll draw boundaries at eight weeks, 12 weeks, 16 weeks, 20 weeks. Heartbeat, brain waves, you know, they'll, they'll draw very specific. For us, up until the final point before delivery. In fact, some individuals in leading office, such as Governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam, who's um, had a wonderful year. Uh, he's really been, yeah. Uh, he said on a radio show, and he's a, He's a former OBGYN, mind you. This is a guy that should know better, said that his stance on abortion, late-term abortion, is you deliver the child, you relax the child, 
Um, then you meet with the mother to make a decision on how to proceed. That moment, the only decision that needs to be made is what you're going to name the child and when you're gonna, where you're going to send them to school. That's the decision that needs to be made. It all kind of goes, all of this goes back to when does life begin? So we have a very clear answer on that. Now, mind you, the secular side, they'll never have a clear answer because they don't live in a place where clarity matters. Truth is not a value they pursue. Convenience is a value they pursue, not truth. So they live in confusion. We say, clearly, life begins at conception. Sperm and egg meet very well. And so you look at if we were to send NASA scientists to Mars and you asked a NASA scientist what would make you just jump head over heels about finding something on Mars, he said, well, if we would find bacteria, that would be proof of life. And if they found proof of life on Mars, they'd have a parade in Silicon Valley and they'd say, we have found life on Mars and within 90 mile radius of that life on Mars parade, there would be preborn children being aborted that have heartbeats, brainwaves, DNA that would never be replicated. So that's one of the more very rational arguments. When that sperm and egg meet, that combination will never happen again. Imago Dei, made in the image of God. That's something under the sovereignty of God that will never be, happen again. That specific combination. So 53 million times we have dismissed that specific com- combination since Roe versus Wade as if we don't want that, there's some other reason why this shouldn't happen. I was watching uh, cable television eight or nine months ago on CNN and Alyssa Milano, um, all I can say is just pray for her and I don't mean that in a, uh, I I mean that sincerely, I really do, because she's a very misguided individual and I, um, only Jesus could uh, uh, help there. And so, and I mean that, because I would not have the patience, I'm, People say, Charlie, how, how do you deal with these people? Sometimes I don't. Um, Jesus was divine. I am not. Um, <laughs> so please pray for her. Um, she goes on CNN and she, ta- she uses her entire CNN segment to say that pro-lifers want to take away women's right to choose uh, when rape, incest, and life of the mother is threatened. So there's a debate in pro-life circles where, where to draw the line, okay? However, if you look at the statistics... Um, 98.9% of all abortions are because of selective reasons, not because of rape, incest, life of the mother. In fact, an independent study done by a pro-abortion group in Florida last year, 71,000 abortions, found that 70,800 of those 71,000, so just about 200 were the outlier. The rule was what? The rule was that women had abortions because of economic conditions or inconvenience. So rape, incest, life, the mother is about 1.6% of all abortions. Some people, that's a spirited debate. However, that's not the rule. And they distract away that abortion is now the leading form of birth control in our country. That abortion is an insurance policy for people that are regretful they got, they um, were in a situation that they didn't want to be in or that they now don't want to proceed as they see fit. And of course, that life will never have a chance to come back up again. As Bill mentioned to me privately, this fight for life in Christianity is nothing new. It's actually thousands of years old. Um, that might come as a surprise because the secular left makes it seem as if, you know, the, the abortion argument is something we should be so thankful for abortion. And if you think I'm kidding, I hear this all the time. Because they say it's a recent medical development. 
that we should be very thankful for that allows us to live more convenient lives. Um, This is what I have to deal with on college campuses. So uh, I'm visiting over 80 of them this year, so please pray for me. However, if you look at, for example, in Roman times, the tradition was a woman would have the child and present the child at the father's feet, and the father could decide up or down whether or not to have the child, keep the child. Now, if he said no, the tradition which happened countless times, more than we'll ever be able to count, is the child would then be put into exile to the elements and basically left for total ruin. It was the Christian church in year 100, 200, 300 that stood in objection to this, that petitioned the last great emperor of Rome, Marcus Aurelius, to stop this practice, to say this is inhumane. So it took Christianity, believing in sovereignty of every individual, to push up against the pagan humanist practice of child abandonment, child you can, fill in the, you can fill in the blanks. The Greeks were uh, also very, um, they, they were in this, tradi- this horrible tradition. If you go to Athens and you look at some of the ruins underneath some of their temples or some of their um, buildings, many la- layers down, they found uh, chambers of hundreds and thousands of baby corpses where they would bring babies and dispose of them if they, if they deemed them to be inconvenient. So this fight is nothing new. This fight of trying to say, I think I'm more important than another sovereign being, trying to create that very, very dangerous hierarchy. It's really interesting, people say, well, what's the leading cause of death in the United States? It's not heart disease, Um, it's not guns, it's abortion by far. Actually, the most dangerous place for an African-American, a black person, is in the womb. I want you to think about that. The most dangerous place If they survive the womb, they've already beat their odds. Some food for thought there. So over 56 million abortions since Roe versus Wade. And the other side says, well, you have to be, we're pro-women, which is why we advocate for this. Well, just the law of averages say that half of those abortions were women. So over half of that, more or less 28 million women never were able to live, have birthdays, graduate from high school, because of that practice of abortion. You're starting to see us win on this issue though. And I have to tell you that young people today, when they're they're allowed to see the videos and the testimonials, it's a winning issue despite what the national media narrative might tell you. There's some people that are saying, don't talk about this issue, just talk about um, fiscal conservatism and social liberalism and stay away from the life issue. I could not disagree with that more for a variety of different reasons. First of all, hedging on your beliefs just to try to get elected, I think, is one of the most reprehensible practices that I've come across in a long time. Secondly, what issue could matter more than when life begins and what we are going to do to protect those that can't protect themselves? So the way we have to frame this is actually already embedded in our language. Uh, We all inherently and intrinsically are pro-life, even those that aren't. You might say, how is that possible? When you see a pregnant woman, you ask the question, hey, when is your baby due, not when is your fetus due? When you have a celebration of a pregnancy, you have a baby shower, not a fetus shower. In our laws, in every state except New York, where they've changed the law, if a woman that is pregnant is a victim of a homicide, it counts as a double homicide. The state already recognizes a preborn, unborn child 
as a life. However, the subjective versus objective view of life is something that is really the root of all this, is can somebody call balls and strikes on when something is a life and not a life? Hold that thought for one second. I'm gonna tie in an example that shows how quickly it is to expose their argument. Recently at the Golden Globes, I didn't watch it, uh, kind of, but I did watch Ricky Gervais afterwards. That was kind of fun, so uh, I have to say. He was rather, uh, he was rather entertaining. Um, there was a woman who I, I had never heard of before, um, Michelle Williams, who came up, and you might have saw this clip, you might have not saw this clip, but it's a very, it's a very important example of exactly what I'm talking about here. She comes up and she accepts the award, um, and she says, I'm so happy I won this award, and all of us need, I'm paraphrasing, but this is the essence of what she said. She said, all of us here, women, need to vote for the right to choose. It's the most important thing in our country. And by the way, if I would not have had my abortion, I would not have been able to win this award. That's what she said. And again, you could look it at your own time independently and fact check it and you'll see. And so she basically was, the argument she was making is that um, nine ounce piece of gold in her hand is much more important than you know, a nine pound baby in her hand. That's basically the argument she was making. That that gave her more satisfaction than having to actually bear the responsibility of that child. Which was most stunning about this, and I did some more research on it, that no one in the media covered, big surprise, uh, she was pregnant, and she is pregnant, um, when she gave that speech. So there were two people up at giving that speech with her. And so, interestingly enough, I dug into it deeper, and I looked and I said, well, how did she notify the world? And she actually did notify the world uh, on New Year's Eve where she said, my husband and I are expecting a child and a baby, which is a, such a sudden turn of events because in order for her to be philosophically consistent, she should be saying, I have a clump of cells within me. We'll see what happens. <laughs> but she's not philosophically consistent. So according to her, it's a life when I want it. It's not when I don't. The composition of the being means nothing. I matter more than whatever may or may not be within me. I dug deeper into a CNN article and I just couldn't believe it. And they don't realize what they're saying when they say this at the very bottom of the article where it talks about Michelle Williams' courageous speech on abortion lights up the Golden Globes. By the way, it's, there's nothing courageous with talking to a bunch of people that agree with you. Like there's nothing courageous about that, okay? <laughs> But it says at the very bottom that Michelle Williams and her husband are proudly expecting a baby in the upcoming months. So they're already admitting that's what it is. And it's already, it's already embedded into our, our, in our language and linguistically we admit it. And so I, I find that example so troubling for a variety of different reasons because that really, it boils down to why we're having this debate in, in the first place. And when does life begin is conven should convenience and your own personal prerogative um, to terminate another life, should that supersede another person's capacity to live it all whatsoever? And she was applauded and heralded by the entire secular media culture. So there's another interesting food for thought to think about, which is a lot, a lot of people in this country are complaining that we need more people from other countries to satisfy the current demands in our country. So there's more job openings and we have to fill them in our country right now. We need foreign labor. You hear this? We need more visas. We need more student visas. And I fell backwards into this argument actually. I think it's a pretty good one. Which is, 
Maybe we wouldn't need people from all the way across the world that may love our country or may hate our country if we didn't abort a million of our own citizens every single year. Now, really what the argument is saying is we're okay with the rest of the world being pro-life, but not my community being pro-life. So we'll just import the other, the world's children, but not our own children. That's very strange when you think about it because all the problems that may or may not come from that very single issue can be rooted back to abortion. So as I mentioned, the abortion rate is higher than the birth rate for black women in New York City. Um, it's now become the primary form of birth control, but here's where it all ties back together to where my experience at Brown University, and then we'll come up for questions with Rob, which is when you believe there is no God, right and wrong is merely an opinion. When you believe there's no God, it's just a debate over morality. And there's a lot of atheist thinkers that say you can find truth through scientific reasoning. It's all a bunch of nonsense. If you do not believe in a higher power and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God, this is the sort of cultural degradation, essentially destruction that you see, degradation that you see in our country. And so that being sanctity of life Sunday, it's too bad we have to keep on doing this every single year. It's important, um, it's troubling, um, but I also am equally compelled and I'm optimistic about this issue for a variety of different reasons. This is a winning issue. In fact, I think the church should make a declarative stand that in 10 years, 20 years, whatever reasonable period of time, we are going to try to reverse Roe versus Wade and sunset this stain on our country. And it's bold, it might be, some people might say it's impossible. But our country has overcome great sins before that people said were completely and totally impossible. And I'll, I'll allow you to explore our own mixed history as a country of ways that we've been able to overcome past injustices many, many times. It's never bet against America's ability to self-correct. And so I'm gonna be at the March for Life later this week with tens of thousands of young people that believe in life, that are advocating for everything that I talk about. And the more extreme the other side is getting on this issue, as horrific as it might be, it does open an opportunity to have a discussion actually around this. And so I'm a little bit troubled in some ways. I wish more churches were like this one that are unafraid to talk about these topics. And as you can see, you could do it in a way that is gentle and hear the other side. It doesn't have to be fire and brimstone as the stereotype is given at times. Um, however, there is a growing, you just say, segment in Christianity, specifically in certain denominations of Episcopalian and Methodist that are tolerating biblical defenses of abortion. Um, in the research of this speech, I actually found that there are Christians for choice, and there's all these very um, troubling groups, to be perfectly honest with you, that try to cite Genesis um, as life begins at breath as a justification uh, for abortion, uh, which is, if, I, if that's not a misinterpretation of the word of God, I don't know what could possibly would be. Um, in closing, there are, there's the new movement which is called Shout Your Abortion, um, or Abortion is Normal. If you don't know what Shout Your Abortion is, just so you understand what we're up against, uh, Shout Your Abortion is a nationwide movement by people like Amy Schumer and the likes to get women to advertise and celebrate and have abortion parties when they have abortions. Um, I'll allow you to draw your own conclusions of the kind of, kind of culture that 
what, what kind of how far culturally you have to be when you're celebrating the loss of a life. Um, there's Abortion is Normal, which was an art exhibit in New York City this last week, where they're trying to go into high schools um, and encourage young women uh, to have abortions and to think okay about abortions and that it's a rite of passage for young women. Um, so as we have a lot of work to do and understand they're actually not staying stationary. They're now trying to actually move into, not just do what in the 1970s and 80s, the pro-abortion movement was about, well, it's just gonna be safe and rare. That was basically their argument, remember? Well, now it's widespread and it is outpacing, outpacing birth rates. Now they're going a step further. They wanna glorify and celebrate. And I'm not, it, it stuns me to see that. So that just, that just goes to show the rightful place of the church in this, um, in this conversation. And um, it's, the more I travel and the more students I talk to, the more opportunity I see around this issue. Um, and it, you could rank, everyone says, well, what's the most important issue you know, in America? I think the most important issue is the fact that we don't teach the Bible in our schools anymore and that we've stopped being a Christian nation, but that's a totally, that, I, I think that's, a, well, this is a byproduct of that, though. I think that the more we've removed the Bible from our schools and we've become further and further away from God, all of a sudden you start making excuses for this type of behavior. So anyway, I would love to open up for some questions and thank you guys so much for having me here again today. So. Thank you very much. Thank you. You got a quick clap and so we can get to the questions. Um, let me put some ground rules on the questions. We're asking for questions, not comments. If we wanted you to comment, we would have invited you to speak. Do you understand that? Uh, that's, um, that's, that's funny, but it's serious. We're not interested in your comment. If you have a question, the question doesn't come with a comment. Can I get an amen? The question is simple, and it ends with a question mark. <laughs> Not a convoluted comment that goes to a question with a question mark. No comment. Questions. Questions. Everyone say questions. <laughs> so if you have a question, we're going to take it. Now, at the end, uh, we're all going to close with a song of, of worship, and then Charlie and I will go out uh, just briefly. We're going to stand over there. We'll take pictures. Uh, but don't come up to Charlie uh, afterwards and share with him your great insight that you want him to take a message to the President of the United States. And da, da, da. Don't do it. it I, he's not here for that. Now, he, he may put up with it, and he does it everywhere I've ever seen him speak, but I'm not putting up with it. You can have a picture with him, and then there, well, that's good. You shake his hand and say thank you, but that's it. Don't go on and on and on. There's people waiting, and you understand what I'm saying. Thank you. God bless you guys. We good with that? Ground rules established? All right. You good with that? Yes. Yeah, he's very good with that. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. I'm very... All right, questions. Here we go. Yes, Michael. Charlie, uh, when, what kind of impact would you say that your wonderful organization had on the 2016 election, and what kind of an impact do you think that your wonderful organization will have on the 2020 election? Sure. Uh, thanks for the question. So for those of you that might not be familiar, I, 
I run Turning Point USA. I started it uh, almost eight years ago. Uh, we are a 501c3 nonprofit, so we focus strictly on education. Um, and so we do have to stay away from politics. We do have another sister organization, our 501c4, uh, Turning Point Action, which will be heavily involved in the 2020 election. Um, and we're going to be Look, our whole ethos is we play offense with a sense of urgency to win America's culture war. That's what we say every single day. So uh, playing offense is going places where Christians and conservatives have never gone before, or have been afraid to go, or we kind of did the half toe in the water thing. You just kind of check a box and you have a little student group on a campus with 10 kids that doesn't really go penetrate culture. Uh, we, we turn that whole model upside down and we go straight into the belly of the beast, uh, places where you know, you're gonna get heckled, protested, shouted down. Um, you know, you're gonna have things thrown at you. You're gonna need 25 bodyguards. We're going straight into that. Um, and look, our whole model is that we believe that every young person in the country is worth fighting for. We believe that all change happens through the hearts and minds of the youth of the country. Every major revolution in the last 150 years, last 1,000 years, last 2,000 years, but especially the last 150 years, originate at universities or clusters of young people. They have the energy, they have the most buy-in, they have, you know, to really, really effectuate change in their country from Tiananmen Square on down. It's almost always through young people, and the left knows that. That's why every single policy position they've created is catered specifically to younger voters. Um, and so we're going to try to counter it with truth and with logic and facts and reasoning, um, totally understanding that we have a way harder sales pitch to make. I mean, my, their sales pitch is free housing, free college, free stuff, free food, no more billionaires, utopia, all that. My sales pitch is uh, get a job, wake up earlier, stop doing drugs, and uh, go to church. Make your bed, move make out your, of the house. Make your bed, move yeah. out of the house. Yeah. Your take care your of yourself. House, right, Stop right. blaming others. So Rob and I went to Jack Hibbs Church uh, to speak on a Wednesday night, which was incredible. And I had the opportunity. Um, that's because I didn't speak. No, that's not true. Um, we had the opportunity to speak, and there was a young man who came up, and the, the clip has now gone quite viral, where he was rightfully pointing out all the problems in California and the country, and was almost using it as a segue, as an excuse why he's not going to be able to succeed. And he's like, well, the taxes are too high, and we're over-regulated, and everyone, everything, you know, Christianity's under attack, and the tech companies are censoring us. And I think I very gently but firmly said, look, we as conservative and Christians, we're not gonna get into this victimhood, oppression, Olympics type culture. You're right, all that stuff is true. I, I, I talk about problems all day long. I just give a whole sermon about problems, right? Um, but it's still a country where if you work hard and play by the rules, you're gonna be able to succeed. And if you, if you wanna get into a cycle of victimhood and blaming other people for your problems, there's an entire political movement for that. Just get in line, right? Just ask, ask for your free stuff, live a mediocre life, and just go do that. If you wanna multiply and live as God has called you and for the fruits of the kingdom, well then, this is the, this is the worldview for you. And it's deeper than just politics. I mean, their, their politics, their philosophy, and their worldview are all tied together into lowering of expectations, blaming other people. Hopelessness. Hopelessness, despair. Um, whereas we're, we're a movement of optimism and individual initiative, um, taking responsibility for your life, charity, benevolence, all these things are tied together. Um, and that will win. It's a harder sell, but it is a winning message long term. Amen. Uh, I, I'll come to your questions in a minute. Uh, we did have a question over here. It was interesting because, um, uh, uh, what's his name? The guy who does all your memes. Uh, John, John, uh, Jake? No, Johnson. Uh, oh, Benny Johnson. Benny Johnson. Uh, Benny Johnson 
uh, always goes to uh, young people, millennials, and he holds up a, a phone. And he says, if I gave you a free phone, you didn't have to pay for it, you get a free phone, but you only can download one app, what would it be? And, and it's typically, you know, Instagram or Twitter or, you know, whatever. But it's always going to be a social media app. Never do they say, oh, I want to get the CNN app or the uh, Fox News app. Young people drive the narrative by social media. And the question we had over here, interestingly enough, is uh, the concern with the election coming up, that the algorithms at this, in Silicon Valley, uh, they estimated over 2 million votes were, were worked through, uh, you know, Silicon Valley, and they're, they're expecting yeah. over 15 million to be affected. Uh, any comment on that? I don't oh, know. no doubt. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I can give a whole speech on this at a different time. And so if you read the Federalist Papers and you read the teachings of the Founding Fathers, Bill would, get a, would find this interesting. Um, founding Fathers warned against centralized power as the greatest form of tyranny they could possibly imagine, that a king or a tyrant would, would be the greatest form of centralized power. And because of that, they, that's why they, war, they warned against government and they wanted to have limited government. And I ask this question to audiences all the time, who's more powerful, the government or Google? And I think Google's way more powerful than our government. And our government is inefficient, they... They don't work, they take Arbor Day off. I mean, it's like they, I mean, and at least, at least 10 to 15% of our government are, you know, Christian conservatives, and they're, they're not mission-driven. Some of them are, and of course they have the ability to audit and put people in prison, but uh, that's, not, that's not to be, you know, diminished. But Google, they work weekends, and they're much better paid, more compensated, and there's not a single Christian that works for Google. There's not a single conservative. And every single person in this room, if you say, oh, I don't use Google, you're, you probably, you, you do. If you have an Android, you do. If you went to YouTube, you do. If you have a Gmail account, you do. Google's 92% of all search results in our country. Um, and so the, 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 basically, I think there needs to be a nationwide movement um, to treat, these, treat it like a centralized power that it is. And I'm not convinced doing nothing is the right approach when it comes to Google. Okay, so I've got three questions in the queue that folks have given me. Uh, one in particular was uh, one of the, the most promising experiences you've had at a major university uh, that really warmed you. Um, where you, you, know, you, you know what to do with that, so take it. Okay. Um, yeah, look, I, I have another campus tour coming up uh, starting in early March, all throughout the spring, and then the, the big one is going to be this fall, which will be, a, you know, that's, that's going to be uh, probably the most important 90 days in the history of everything that I've been doing for, you know, the short eight years. Um, look, there's been a lot of great moments, and I can tell you just more generally than anything else, there are students that come up, and they're usually with two or three other friends, and they're super quiet about it, but they say, if I came out as a conservative, I would get kicked out of my fraternity, kicked out of my sorority. Thank you for coming to my campus. You've given me the conviction to keep going. And they're basically whispering to me and they're giving thumbs up. They said, if my friends knew I was coming to this event, I would, you know, and I said, well, they're not really your friends if they're going to stop being your friends if they find out you're coming to my event. But it's a whole different conversation. But um, look, I, there's, I, I could go on at this at length, but it's, it's a soft form of liberal fascism is what it is. So. Uh, tie in with, if you would, in the question from the first service, which is critical um, in relation to, you took a gap year that turned into mm -hmm. seven gap years. Yeah. Uh, you didn't go to college. That's correct. Um, and and we, we know of Hillsdale College, we know of Liberty University, these are schools that you, you, you back and support, 
But for, for parents and young people looking at college, give that answer because it's critical. Yes. And I, I want you to share with everybody. Okay, I'll, I'll do it as, as tightly as I can. So I, I never went to college. Uh, I took a gap year and it turned into seven and a half, eight gap years. Great experience uh, for me. It was, ended up being the right choice. A couple things when it comes to college. I get wrongfully accused as being anti-college. That's just not true. If you're going to college for good reason with a good financial plan that won't indebt your child um, and you know exactly what you're studying and why you're studying it and you are certain your child will remain strong in faith and not hate America when they get done with it, then college is the answer for you. Um, however, uh, you're, you're playing Russian roulette with their values and their, and their political views as soon as they enter college. That's number one. Number two, we have way too many, way, way too many people going to college. In fact, I think we have 80% too many people going to college in our country. It's become, it's become a cultural accreditation mill um, that unfortunately strokes the egos of upper, upper middle class parents. And so I'm going to say this, and I mean no offense to anyone in this room, but it's probably the most effective thing I can say, right, Rob? And when I say it, I have people come and confide in me and they say they needed to hear it. So I mean no offense to anyone in this room when I say this, but um, most students are being pushed to expensive colleges by their parents. And uh, parents are far too involved in the decision-making process. Um, and it's usually that my experience is the ego of the parents gets way too involved in the kids going to way, way too expensive schools. And so here's the, here's the test for parents out there. Are you willing to turn to your neighbor? Are you willing to turn to your brother and turn to your sister and look them in the eyes and say, my son Johnny is not going to college this year and I'm okay with that? If you're unwilling to do that, then it's more about you and less about your kid. That's the test. Um, now... College has never been more expensive. We have students that go recklessly and endlessly in debt. I'm talking about $100,000, $200,000 in debt, and that is just basically a mortgage on their future. Um, and again, if, if they're going for a really good reason, but community college taking a gap year, and our country is in desperate need of HVAC, carpenters, plumbers, electricians. And we do, as a country, we do a horrible job, and we stigmatize those individuals as being less intelligent, and less wise, and I could tell you as someone who has walked the halls of Brown, Stanford, Harvard, Yale, Columbia, Dartmouth, Cornell, that every electrician, carpenter, and plumber that I've come in contact with is infinitely more wise than every single one of the radicals that goes to those Ivy League schools. Uh, we had a question over here in relation to the Supreme Court. Do you think they have the moral fortitude to overturn uh, Roe v. Wade. Not, not in the current composition, but if there's one more seat on the Supreme Court, um, maybe. And uh, so, look, the, the Supreme Court um, impacts many chambers. It's one of the few. Uh, it's one of the few things that really does impact all three branches of government. Um, what I mean by that, because the president nominates, the Senate confirms, and then you place in that third branch. You can't say that about everything. Uh, even you can make the argument maybe about impeachment, but the chief justice is more just a figurehead. Um, Mitch McConnell actually probably has more oversight there. But look, the, the courts, courts need to be impartial. They need to be fair. They need to be rational. Um, you have seen with the rise of activist judges, um, they're anything but that. Um, there will be some vacancies on the Supreme Court uh, soon. And we'll see, for whatever reasons those might be, it might be Clarence Thomas resigning or retiring, or there might be other reasons for that. Um, and if you think that the country got divided over Brett Kavanaugh, you've seen nothing yet. And the only, by the way, so I'll say this as quickly as I can, but 
no the, the, the entire the entire Brett Kavanaugh debate, it wasn't about what he might have done 30 years ago. That was all nonsense. That was all vapor. It was about abortion. Make no mistake. The reason that they were clawing on the wall, the doors of the Supreme Court, the reason they were screaming in my face the way that they were, the reason they were hunting people down in the streets, the reason they were following senators into elevators, the reason they were doxing people's private information is they were scared and horrified they might not be able to terminate pregnancies one minute before birth. That's what they were most afraid of. That's what the entire Supreme Court battle was about. That's why they were able to get thousands of women to march in the streets. And just be prepared, be postured, be prayerful, because if another Supreme Court vacancy opens up, that's one of the four current on the left, and that is, that's a 6-3 majority that very well could hear a case. Now, now mind you, the, the left has tried to convince us that it's settled law, settled law. Anyone in medicine will tell you that the science that we had when Roe versus Wade was decided, is almost this, and versus now, is almost the same as if we knew just the, amount, just the same amount as the galaxy when Galileo was on Earth as we did today. It's that different. We have so much more discovery of how a zygote deliv- develops, how an embryo develops, heartbeat, heart, brain waves. When Roe versus Wade was decided, we knew so little about the, the gestation process and the formation of the individual within the womb. In fact, most of the justices were flying completely blind the lie of a clump of cells was testified by OBGYNs that actually believed it because technology of ultrasound was so lackluster in the 1970s and that was nobody's fault except it was before its time. So to rehear that case today when we have such specific and unbelievable technology of ultrasound of when we can see a heartbeat, brain waves, DNA actually being created and you can see a, sp- a, a sperm and an egg form in real time now that is a decision that I think should be reheard. And so stay prayerful that when that, that, by the way, that position, it might not happen in the next four years, it might not happen in the next eight years, but those positions are lifelong appointments. And if you have five or six people on that court that view life the way that is proper and is lawful, um, it could save the next 53 million people from being aborted over the next 50 years. So we're limited on time. We're actually already over, but I, I, I'm going to conclude with this. Um, when you were speaking in relation to the biblical perspective of when does life begin, and, and uh, we have a major presidential candidate saying at breath, and the scriptures are very clear. If you go into Luke chapter 1, uh, you see Zacharias. He's in the temple. Uh, the angel appears to him, says that your wife will be with child. He was in there in, if you look in the Levitical cycle for the, for the Levitical priests, he was in there in the order of Abiah, which would have been June 13th to June 19th. He's told that his wife will be pregnant. He goes home. It's all set. At the sixth month, which it says in Luke 132 or 141, in the sixth month, that's when the angels, in, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, that's when the angel speaks to Mary that she will conceive and be with child, and, and when Elizabeth comes into the um, um, location of Mary, it says that the baby leapt in the womb, which was John the Baptist. And, and so if you look at that, um, the conception six months from June 13th to June 19th would take us to, um, what is that, December oh, 25th. Christ was conceived, not born, Christ was conceived more than likely on the 25th. And then he was born in September because that was the time of the, of the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's where you get Emmanuel, God with us. God tabernacled with us. Um, we just put it together. And it says the shepherds were out in their fields. They were taking a census. They wouldn't have done that in the winter. It was more September. So put all that in your pipe and smoke it. And that's where we are with that. 
Um, we were asked a question back there about um, why don't we in the church, or how do we feel about rape, incest, and, and, and life of the mother, and those issues. We, we are divided in the body of Christ, but they represent less than 1.5% of all abortion. Mm -hmm. So that, that's almost one of those things we don't even have to, we'll, we'll yield that. I, personally, I'll yield it. I'll yield it. If we can shut down the other 98.5, I'll, I'll yield. And some of you can have an issue with that. Fine. I'd rather save 98.5% and yield on that issue. We can get to that later. Um, so, but I still am fervent in relation to these other areas. So this is how we operate. This is how we try to do it. It's, it's the process. Well, and one other point on that. When I get that brought up on college campuses of someone who has the pro-choice belief, I, I would say, like, okay, well, then will you be willing to get rid of the 98% and just have it legal for them? They say, oh, no. Well, then, okay, it's, it, then why are you just bringing it up to try to, to trap us in an exception, not the rule? That's the only, so that's the best counter-argument if someone brings it up. You say, all right, would you be willing then to make it illegal in 98% of the time and just legal 2%? Oh, no, I think it should be legal for sex-selective abortions or for economic conditional abortions. So. Is uh, Kevin here? Kevin McGarry? I think he stepped out. Did he step out? Oh, I was going to use him. Kevin, Kevin McGarry is up oh, there. He is. Come oh, there on. He is. Why, why are you hiding out in the foyer? Get up here. Come on. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna conclude. Kevin McGarry is my dear friend, and he's what's that? The podcast. The podcast. Oh yeah yeah yeah. I got that. Uh, Kevin is my dear friend. He's preached here before. Uh, Kevin is is the uh, president of the Frederick Douglass Foundation, um, and I want him to share. This is fascinating because. Um, people say when you t speak on pro-life, politically, it's, it's not a very viable position and you're going to lose all kinds of votes. And yet this is, this is huge in the Hispanic community where uh, there's a replacement going on with one party because they've, they've had 98% of the black vote and, and now they're, they're losing that black vote. And so they're appealing to the Latino vote, but they're losing that because the Latinos are exceptionally pro-life. And what's happening in the black community is an awakening and it's happening with, with men like, like Kevin. The awakening is this, 13% uh, of the population of America is, is African-American, black. You cut that in half, which would be 6.5% male, female, 6.5% for females. You break it down further to childbearing years, it's about 3.5%. So 3.5% of the population of the United States of America is responsible for almost 40% of the abortions. It is genocide on the black community, and this man contends, and one of the questions in the last service was, do Black Lives Matter support your position to protect the unborn black child? Take it over, Kevin. All right, real, real quick, and uh, just a couple other data points. Um, so there was a black, very well-known activist who was running for presidency. Before he ran, he coined the term black genocide, and referring to Planned Parenthood. Do you know who that is? Jesse Jackson. Reverend Jesse, Jesse Jackson. This was before he ran in early in mid 70s. I think he ran in 76. After when he was running, Planned Parenthood sat him down. He changed his tune and it's been changed ever since. He followed the money. But he coined the term black genocide as the practice that Planned Parenthood. And he was right then. He's very well. Tell us about Oakland. So uh, in Oakland, um, I was at a uh, March for Life uh, uh, event a couple years ago. Black Lives Matter showed up. And it was me, Walter Hoy, and some others who were talking about life and how it impacts the black community. Black Lives Matter showed up to protest us. The irony is, is Black Lives Matter Oakland, they were all white. So they were, they were protesting the black men 
who were standing for the black community and talking for life for the black community, and it was all white, Black Lives Matters protesting. It's just insane, circular insanity is just incredible. No. All right, here's what we're going to do. This is the last thing. We're going to bless Charlie. Take out your iPhones. Everybody take out your iPhone. Okay, smartphone. Android. Your Android listens to you, by the way. Just so you know. It does. All right, what we're going to ask you to do is subscribe to Charlie's podcast. The reason why is we did this at Jack Hibbs' church, and the minute you subscribe to it and you start to link it to other folks and, and you know, send the tweet, he rises in the New York Times uh, list for podcasts. This is critical to make sure that, especially media-wise, the intensity of him reaching all these different audiences helps. So right now, subscribe to his podcast right now. So all of you guys can on your phone. Um, if you don't know how, we have uh, a, a young man who can help you. Stand up, Jack, right? So... Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, all, all kidding aside, if you guys are lost on your phone, just find, you know, find a teenager, find someone that's, you know. Um, so look, every, if you have an iPhone, you, there's an app called Podcast. It's a purple app that looks like a microphone. You press it, type in Charlie Kirk Show, and you press that big subscribe button. You've got to talk way slower. Okay. Every phone has a podcast app. It's a purple microphone, and every, it's downloaded by default. You press it, type in Charlie Kirk Show, and it will probably come up in suggestions. You press that. She got it right there, and you press that purple button. Here's the significance of this, everybody. Uh, if everyone in this church does this, we would surge probably towards the top of the charts, um, and hundreds of thousands of people will then see us in the top of the charts and will organically listen to the gospel and what I talked about today. So if, you, if we can get a surge then all of a sudden other people that might be searching today, searching tomorrow, searching next week, will stumble upon truth. And you guys can do that uh, for no cost on your phone today. So thank you very much. Uh, last thing before we uh, stand to close in worship, uh, uh, first of all, I want to say thank you, Charlie. Thank and you. if you guys don't know, this is Erica Franz Vey. Stand up, Erica. She's precious. She's just become Michelle's best friend, I think. I'm not sure. They're, they feel like they've known each other forever. Charlie and I, on the other hand, we're trying to... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but what I'd also like is uh, not only keep them in prayer, both Charlie and Erica, because they travel this country. You're on the road 340 days mm -hmm. a year. Yeah. Erica, too. And uh, pray for them. And the other thing is, if you feel compelled to support Turning Point USA, then write a big, big check. We had a $25,000 check last service to support uh, Turning Point. Thank you. Let's stand. Lord, we thank you for Charlie. We thank you for Erica. We thank you for Turning Point. Lord, I thank you for Kevin, and I thank you for Bill Federer and all those who came out today. And Lord, we long to see an awakening to the truths that the world would see that this is not a blob of tissue. This is a baby in the womb. And the safest place in America should be the womb of a mother. The safest place in the world should be the same. And so, God, we ask that you would restore life to this nation. And I pray, God, that we would 
never tire of proclaiming this truth. And so we, we pray, Lord, that you would open up doors for Turning Point, for Charlie, for Erica, and all these influencers that go into these campuses, that they would pro- profess the truth, that folks would hear the truth, and the truth would set them free. So God, thank you. And we ask your blessing now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's worship the Lord. And Charlie and I will head out there while you're worshiping. Get ready. Get ready.